0: gonna
1: have the news it's monday may 25th it is memorial day i hope everybody is enjoying their day off of work, work? if that's still a thing uh this is la podcast i am scott frazier here with alissa walker and he's davenport how are you all doing what a gorgeous week
0: yeah just that has been really nice just you know barbecuing for one mm-hmm Six pack for one. <laughs> um, <laughs> we did some grilling, but you know, no Dodger dogs, unfortunately. We no Dodger grilling.
2: dogs. You, well, Dodger
0: dogs are canceled.
2: Let's. I mean, <laughs> once again, the prognosticatory powers of this show. We uh, well, we'd have to actually go back and, and listen to make sure this is true. But I remember a conversation that Alyssa reminded us of. Where we were talking about the big COVID outbreaks in meatpacking plants around the country. And Alyssa said something to the effect of, like, we don't have a lot of meatpacking plants in L.A. And Scott said, bro, probably in Vernon. And lo and behold, two weeks later, (laughs) huge outbreak. Just in time for summer. Yeah. At the the Farmer John meatpacking plant in Vernon. Right. 116 cases or something like that. The largest non-residential outbreak on the L.A. County outbreak tracker. Let's just get right into it. The amount of misinformation around what is actually happening in Los Angeles in terms of our outbreak. I don't understand how this is so difficult to grasp. But on the same day, you have the Trump administration the The Trump White House warning Eric Garcetti and Barbara Ferrer, sending them a letter that continuing the lockdown in Los Angeles could be, quote, arbitrary and unlawful, basically threatening to come in and throw the doors open. And at the same time, right. Deborah Burks and the CDC are talking about Los Angeles as a hotspot, a place where, like, cases are rising out of control. Her quote was... Even though Washington has remained closed, L.A. has remained closed, Chicago has remained closed, we still see these ongoing cases. Somehow, both of these entities have managed to be incorrect about what is actually going on in, in, the, in the city and, and, and county right now. What's really happening is we've been at a very kind of disturbing simmer for a very long time. We have averaged in the low 40s in deaths per day every day for about five weeks now, uh, which was pretty close to the basically we hit a peak in average deaths per day in the low 40s and have stayed there. The, the, the curve is completely flat for, for over a month. Hospitalizations have dropped, which we've talked about. New hospitalizations and deaths are approximately equal right now, which you would think would lead to a drop in deaths at some point, but that has not happened. So it's not a hot spot. Deaths in LA County are are still in terms of proportion of LA County's population to the rest of the country, they're still below average. Even if you remove right. the state of New York entirely, LA County is is still below average. And the cases are going up, but as we've said that's mostly a result of increased testing and the percent of tests that are positive have actually decreased by a significant amount. It's gone from about fourteen percent to now, week to week, it's about five percent of tests performed have a positive result. But it is not going down; it's no. not uh, budging at all. And you really have to like you have to
1: take what's happening at the federal level, which obviously is specifically the Department of Justice letter to Eric Garcetti, is to some extent the product of political posturing from the Trump administration, you have to like balance the the federal Mm -hmm. confusing developments that have occurred with the equally confusing Mm -hmm. messages we talked about last week that are coming from local and state authorities. You know, we're going into, I mean, now we're in a big holiday weekend. We saw a lot of people gearing up to do some version of the normal Memorial Day festivities. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Mayor Garcetti, I mean, Alyssa, we have the expert on on this call with us, so I would love for her to, to speak wow, more I'm about so, what, what Garcetti am, I'm has so said.
0: I'm so flattered.
1: But yeah, Dr. Ferrer and Garcetti, speaking respectively for the county and the city of Los Angeles, have both issued what, I personally, as somebody who spends a lot of time trying to parse the information coming out of their offices, found to be very difficult to follow. And it seems like things are changing rapidly. The orders are occasionally conflicting or just don't seem like they can be easily understood by just average Angelinos trying to determine, am I safe? Am I endangering myself or my family or my neighbors? What can I do? What should I do, and what should I abstain from doing? And this is so. This has been a tough. This yeah. has been a tough period. I feel this
0: like this is this has been something that's been talked about at the national level too. Like at this point, you know, you've seen the stories about like an abstinence policy doesn't work for health risks like this, and there's a lot of really good examples of that. And you know, they bring up things like HIV transmission, things like that. Like telling people don't do it doesn't work as well as telling people the risks, like a a level of risk, like a a code of some sort where it gives Mm -hmm. you like the different, you know, red, red, orange, yellow. And that's what we've been asking for this whole time, I think that we would appreciate some guidance that wasn't so yes, no, and just be like, if you're going to do this, do this. If you're going to do this, do this. It's pretty clear from what a lot of the experts have said that it's okay to have like someone to your house if you're careful about it at this point. And I I see why they can't recommend that. But if you say, if you're going to do this and you stay outside and you stay apart from each other or, you know, whatever, like it's probably okay. And I think that the fatigue is so real at this point, like, and you see people doing, if you look on social media, they're like, well, you know, we, we're actually having, you know, like a play date or we're actually going to try to do something. And I think that it's probably time, especially when you have the conflicting information about like, which store can be open? What is curbside pickup if you're located in a mall? Like, what do all these things actually mean? Mm -hmm. I, I think you just have to start giving people the information about risks and then say wear a mask, every time you come in contact with people that are not someone you've agreed to like hang out with maybe inside, you know, it, in, in public or something like that. And then that's it. You know, I think yeah. at this point we've they've lost the narrative to me, yeah. right? I mean, it, let, let's try just getting people to the next, you know, we have another month, pro- over a month to supposedly, although that could change next week. <laughs> they could be like, oh, July 4th, we were just kidding. But then at the same time, you're right. Like the, the news that, it's really not getting much better and we don't really know why it's not getting substantially better and where those those deaths and hospitalizations are actually continuing to stay high would also be helpful. Maybe if it's all like yeah. nursing home related or something like that, that would be good to know. Right. I mean,
1: well, the, the thing, I, the, the other thing, too, is like, so we are what, about 70 days into the the stay at home Mm -hmm. orders. The thing that I think is is increasingly making it challenging is we now see counties and cities are starting to go their own way more as we've moved on in our reopening to uh, what Gavin Newsom called like phase two, that we've been in that since May 8th. So a little bit like two and a half weeks now, basically, and since that time, that that really seems like the point in time where we went from a, a lockstep, disciplined messaging that was relatively easy to understand to uh, sort of just like a total cacophony of different voices telling you to do or not do different things. I don't. I mean, on this show, even. As recently as a couple weeks ago, we were talking about how like people who were doing what you said, Alyssa, and like posting pictures of themselves on uh social media would be like publicly mm-hmm. shamed, basically about about their behavior. It doesn't seem like that's happening mm-hmm. anymore. It seems mm-hmm. like now that is almost expected. I, I I don't really, I don't know. I don't have a great grasp of like what you know. Like like, like you said, we we should have. If not a yes, no, then just like, how do you do this activity and and still be keeping yourself safe? Right. Is that, that, that seems like a, a fair expectation. Because also now. like
0: things like not to keep bagging on golf, but we Please we should, yeah. <laughs> but just the fact that certain activities like golf and tennis, I'll loop tennis in there, but they're they have very clear rules for how you can return to the golf course and return to the tennis court. And they don't really, you are probably not a family group if you're golfing together and you don't have to have any kind of, you can share, you know, space in doing your golfing things together. And they're not, they're, you know, first you're supposed to wear a mask to do these things, but like that's kind of giving people like a really good excuse to go out and play golf when other things are so limited at this point And that actually costs money and things like that. But then again, we still have like things like parks closed because they're too small for social distancing, for people to be responsible enough to mm-hmm. stay away from each other. And you see the thing in a lot of other cities where they've been painting these circles on the ground, on the grass, six feet away from each other, because people aren't responsible enough to to go to a public space on their own. And like, what do you want them to do? Do you want them to crowd into their small balcony until in their apartment and you know have a secret party, or do you want them to be feel comfortable going out and being outside? So, right. I mean, that's probably what we want. So
2: the fact that parks and are closed and trails are open doesn't really make any sense yeah. to me. Like, there is seemingly just as much risk for people that like don't want to be in contact with another person in a park situation than there is like on a trail. If someone's coming in the other yeah. direction from you, it's very difficult to like jump in the bushes to
0: And that away. the beaches aren't technically open for people to sit, even though you could go to a park two blocks away and yeah. sit in a park that's smaller and the beach is yeah. huge.
1: Yeah. It's just, it's, and you can go, but you can go swimming at the beach. But you can go swimming.
0: And yeah, surely you'd have to come out and dry off. It's so confusing. Yeah. I mean, like, just, you have to like run into the water and then run all the way back to your car as fast as you can.
1: (laughs) It's, it's just so confusing. I just feel like it's very difficult. We went from, as we, as we talked about before, uh, I think last week even, we had Dr. Ferrer saying, with all certainty, the stay-at-home orders are going to be extended another
2: three months, i.e. into August, basically. That's what uh, the that Trump letter is responding to, seemingly. It talks about comments that were made, even though Garcetti, yeah, immediately went on television. and, and they, they, didn't, they didn't watch Anderson right. Cooper,
1: I guess. So uh, Garcetti went on Anderson Cooper 360 and then explained that that would in- involve loosening. But then this week, Dr. Ferrer then said that they anticipate everything being opened by the 4th of July.
2: And someone at the budget committee meeting, I think someone from the city legislative analyst office said that end of May. by end of May, which is in a week.
0: That's next week.
2: It's, it's so hard right now. I mean,
1: if you just think about, like, we are all more or less cut off from most of, like, the, the networks from which we would typically get this information. So I feel like people are more than ever attuned to these official channels of, of yeah. information, just trying to figure out how to to navigate daily life. And it's not easy when you have the same people saying different things in the span of a week or different people saying different
2: things every day. How do you do it? I, I haven't figured it out yet, but it makes sense. I feel like that we've flatlined Given that, like, as like as the initial outbreak declines in severity, and as at the seemingly the same rate, we start like busting out. We start opening up retail. We start sending a bunch of people back to work. We start. I went for a very long drive yesterday, and I was driving through like Manhattan Beach, where people were out doing shit, like they were, and like a lot of people in clusters, a lot of people with masks just like lower down around their necks the parks were full of people i guess there it's okay maybe it's like different rules municipally and as i was driving i heard this bone chilling ad for morongo casino that you can (laughs) sort i'll play now that you can sort of hear because it's just me recording it off my car radio but here it is
3: Here we go. My number one reason to come to Morongo, we're open. Heck yeah! We now have thousands of new slot machines, a new sports bar, two other new awesome cocktail lounges, new restaurants, new table game pits, all the rooms are newly designed. Everything I want! That was one reason, right? Who cares? Get out of the house! Get back in the game! Morongo! Play it safe! Good times! Rick's reason. We are open. Newer... Better safe. get back in the game. My
2: other reason. It's time. It's time for good times. Morongo Casino Resort and Spa. Morongo now open. Good times. It's time. It's time for good times. Play it safe.
0: Get back in. I love play it, it safe. Play it, play it safe is day. so good. That's a great tagline.
2: Play it how safe. How do you? Time. How do
0: you do like that? So the slot machine, for example. Uh huh. You like? Is it contactless?
2: That, well, most new,
1: of them are buttons. New slot machines in between each user, <laughs> I think, is <laughs>
2: they just throw it out.
0: You use your <laughs> phone to like pull the lever or whatever for the slot machine. I don't
2: know. Um, I mean, it's a casino. It's aptly named in a way because with one space it becomes moron go, which is you are a moron if you go to Morongo Casino right now. Casino is probably the most disease ridden place that you can go Uh uh-huh especially because
1: they're only appealing to you people who just go because it's
2: open (laughs) yeah and that's what it's saying number one reason to go we're open we're open yeah it's get back in the game but this (laughs) is kind of it's a little of like you know it's a fuzzier version but it's kind of the same message we're getting at higher levels of government i just feel like there's this kind of shrug like i feel like there's an acknowledgement now that the government apparatus megazord that needed to spring into formation at this moment is just not coming the like contact tracing aid programs tenant protection small business relief like even our testing kind of sucks Like, the one thing that we have really tried to ramp up, people are getting their test results back in, like, six days, 12 days. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's money flushed down the toilet. You get the COVID test back 12 days later. It was a useless endeavor. And, you know, I think that there's just kind of a shrug right now. And while there will not be, like, the big announcement to acknowledge, like, we're throwing the doors open... I think that is kind of what this is about, getting people back to work, getting retail operating again so we can increase the city's revenue, which let's talk about that right now. There was a big meeting this week at the city council to talk about the budget. We've talked about the budget many times on this show and the fact that there were a number of significant cuts to it, $230 million worth of cuts mostly in the form of 16,000 city workers being given 10% furloughs and at the same time a pretty significant increase uh, to the LAPD budget, specifically a 9.4% increase to total salaries paid to officers. Uh, there were a lot of groups, Black Lives Matter and the K Town for All, and many others. A group called the People City Council did a lot of organizing and preparation for these meetings. First on Wednesday, when it was first agendized, and then when it got pushed to Thursday, then again, hundreds of people it seemed like calling in to say, like, it's unconscionable to be increasing the LAPD budget again. In this moment, like do the brave thing and and uh, pull these raises back, like start uh, undoing this. A few moments from the meeting on Thursday, there were presentations from Rich Llewellyn, the city administrative officer, and city legislative analyst Sharon So. Sharon So said the budget that the mayor was presenting was a best case scenario in terms of revenue. Their office, I think, put out three projections optimistic middle and pessimistic for what revenue could look like and the mayor's revenue projection is higher than the most optimistic scenario by something like 40 million he just decided it was like yeah okay the so three options uh let's let's go ahead. i mean i guess that would explain maybe why we're seemingly opening up pretty quickly we might be trying to hit that number Mike Bonin was the only council member to mention the LAPD budget. The fact like he actually mentioned reopening the labor talks because he talked about how this budget is a work of fiction and its projections are incredibly rosy. And there's no way we are going to balance it without doing something about these very generous raises that have been given to the LAPD. I was looking through I posted this, but I was looking through. Salary numbers compared to 2010, especially compared to starting salaries for LAUSD teachers. And I was honestly shocked to find Just insane. that teacher, the, the salary for a starting LAUSD teacher with a bachelor's degree and an LAPD officer entering the academy in 2010 were the same functionally identical. They got the exact same salary. And in the ensuing nine years, This enormous gap has opened up where in 2010, they were each paid about $45,500. And now the difference is if you're a teacher, you get 53,000. And if you're an LAPD officer entering the academy, you get 67,000. That is a huge, huge gap that has emerged. And just looking
1: at it. And something like what? Like the the police have gotten like, five
2: percent annual five percent it, it averages out uh decade. that's like a 50 percent annual increase over the course of those nine years so it's like something like a five percent annual increase on average and if, and for teachers in terms of real dollars they're getting paid exactly what they were in 2010 what this says to me is like this was a very prosperous decade in la in a lot of ways i mean like the in terms of city revenue revenue was booming at the end of the decade. And it was just not parceled out equally, you know, at the state or at the city level. It doesn't seem like from the budget cuts that were made in 2010 to school funding at the state level, it doesn't seem like teachers ever really recovered from that. No, and this new hit hit that the budgets are taking is
1: going to really exacerbate that issue because it's the kind of Mm -hmm. thing where, exactly like what you're saying, when there's a recession like this, School spending goes down fast and it takes a long time to recuperate. Yeah. It really takes a long time to come back. So you end up with uh, this disparity. I mean, part of it is not prioritizing school funding enough. And part of it is way over prioritizing the amount that we need to spend on police. And leaders like Eric Garcetti, who has been famously timid in his relationship with the police union's the, the abject failure of, of city leaders to want to pick that fight with police and fire unions, police unions in particular, because the size of the police budget is still three times larger than the, the fire department, which is in turn much larger than what any other department
2: does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, I mean, there's a very complex network of patronage here the police union is a big funder of a lot of political campaigns. In certain parts of the city, you just do not want not the good ones. <laughs> you just <laughs> you just don't want a mailer going out in some parts of the city that says, like, this candidate is against public safety, like vote for right. this person instead. And that's how you get people like Councilmember Joe Buscaino. Saying stuff like he went on this run about like other cities. We should feel lucky because other cities are doing furloughs and layoffs. And like we should be grateful that we didn't ask people to stay home. And it's like we asked 16,000 people to stay home. We did massive furloughs. But he is a council member who wants to be mayor, who is a former police officer, who wants to run on like the public safety ticket. So his angle on it is just to not acknowledge that it's happening at all, apparently, just continuing to demonstrate no awareness of what is happening in the city he was elected to oversee. Notably, he shows up to these meetings
1: these days wearing a police officer uniform. So, yeah, what is
0: up with that? Bizarre. I haven't done enough Zoom reviews lately, but that has been jarring. Like, what is that message?
2: It's like, I don't know, for some reason. I will arrest you. Yeah. If you don't you're just, in, the, you're just in his house. What are you dressing like that in your home for? Oh, I mean, it's
0: quarantine. feels like everybody's Buffalo Bill. Their, everybody's got their <laughs> thing
2: <laughs> in front of the mirror. I'd arrest me. You had, I mean, same thing. You have David Rue. The ways that people managed to just like wriggle away from confronting the LAPD budget in any way, David Rue decided to take the tack of let's dig more into the reserve fund. This is a reserve fund that has already been cut in half. Before this crisis, it was about four hundred million dollars. Immediately, two hundred million dollars had to be had to plug the hole in the twenty nineteen budget. But he says stuff like, "This is an emergency. Like, let's you know, this is an emergency fund. We should be digging into it." The reserve fund is used by credit rating agencies to give the a rating to the city's fiscal health the lower it is the more expensive it is to borrow it will cost immense amounts of money if we fully deplete Uh, the reserve fund which by the way has already been cut in half even if you cut it in half again you wouldn't be covering just the amount of the police raises alone so what you're advocating for is to hurt the city's credit health also make it much more vulnerable in the case of one of the many exotic natural disasters that we are vulnerable to in this city, then you deplete the reserve fund even more for what, like for something like that to happen. But this is the result of he's in sort of a 127 hours situation where the gr- like he's caught between the ground that is right. the police protective <laughs> right. league. That has given 50 grand or so to his primary campaign, presumably will donate more to his general election campaign. And the rock that is Nithya Raman's campaign that has fallen on him has been talking about how it's not conscionable to raise police salaries by this month, uh, by this much in a um, biblical pandemic financial crisis. That kind of pitch to like deplete the reserve fund is something that none of his colleagues will take seriously. He knows they won't take it seriously. He doesn't take it seriously himself. It is dog shit policy, but that's the whole point of it. It is something to provide a paper towel of coverage for his ass. And the point where later his political opponent is like, talking about city mismanagement of this crisis he can say like i was talking about it too i was saying this is an emergency we should use the reserve fund it's just to have a sentence to say later on and in this present moment not have to confront these lapd raises at all
1: uh let me just say why i don't think that that will be good enough i think honestly for any challenger this particular election is going to be more difficult than usual because of the because of coronavirus because reasonably like when you're trying to challenge an incumbent you're trying to you're trying to get the attention of people who otherwise might not be paying as much attention people who are not necessarily as plugged into yeah. city politics which is most people who have a lot of things going on that is compounded in the situation where people are dealing with the sort of things that they have been during the course of this pandemic, where people are losing jobs, kids are staying home, entire routines are upended, people are losing their lives, people are being saddled with medical debt. It's a lot to ask for people to tune in and and pay attention to city Mm politics, But what I think for the like David Rue and people who are operating like him under the assumption that they can just say, oh, well, I did something or like I said something, even though it didn't get done, is that what actually happened during this meeting is Mm -hmm. that city council agreed to let the mayor's budget go into effect. And when you listen to the hours, the literal hours of public testimony, all these people calling in and castigating the city council members, saying that the city council has, in effect, abandoned the city of Los Angeles and Angelenos in favor of giving unnecessary raises to the police, approving a budget that makes spending on the police billions of dollars in spending on the police in a single year, like 55% 55% of the city's general fund, it is not going to stand up to scrutiny. And you can hear how how viscerally angry it makes people just in the way that they're talking about this. You don't actually need to tap into some like latent desire to participate in municipal administration. You don't need to dig that deep in order to get to the point where people mm-hmm. start going, of our taxes are going to the LAPD this year when people need services, when people need actual assistance and crime
2: is down to, to levels that it hasn't been at in decades. People are very mad about that. And even if you care about, by the way, policing and like more patrols and things like that, this doesn't get you any of that. In fact, it is a decrease in services as patrol officers have to jump into civilian positions. Mike Bonham was pointing this out. Like, civilian employees of the LAPD have been furloughed. Sworn officers yeah. now have to sit in those seats. It will lead to less pat- less patrols. So it is more money for less service. Yeah,
1: and, and so this is a complete failure by the city council. It is an unmitigated disaster of a budget. They are... Uh, city council members are saying we're going to revisit this many times throughout the course mm-hmm. of the that's upcoming what they're year, saying, which is, actually, on this. which is actually worse, because that means that you are already taking the the bureaucratic positions, the people that you've told to stay home 10% yeah. of the time with 10% less pay. And now you're telling them to spend a significant amount of their time throughout the course of the year redoing the budget every month, basically, with diminished opportunities for public oversight and input, it's going to be a disaster. And the fact that David Rue, like every other council member on this body, has essentially signed off on that, every council member besides Mike Bonin, apparently, is an incredible black mark on his record. It's the kind of thing that just being just saying, "Well, I gave it the old college try and and nobody else was interested in this it it's not really going to stand up to scrutiny. I think that it will fare really uh, poorly for him when he eventually does try that line out
0: and the teacher thing too I mean we're looking at them coming back to school and having to teach like two half days mm-hmm. a- Possibly. I mean, it sounds like that talking about like getting more, you know, service for your money or something like that, right? Like, I can't even imagine what teachers are going to have to endure in this upcoming school year because of the reduced class sizes when we already have too large of a class size in many places, which have to split them into two and give them both the same amount of attention and do that even with the amount of staff that we have now. I mean, we're going to need to hire more teachers, a mm-hmm. lot more teachers to be able to teach everybody all the all the students in the same way that we that we have tried to before.
1: And that and that's actually something that has been discussed increasingly over the course of the past week, Alyssa, of course, you have kids who are in the public school system. LAUSD has meetings upcoming to go over their budget. Basically, a lot of that funding comes from the state level. And with Gavin Newsom's May revision to the budget coming out, officials with the school system have been saying very loudly, even though public documents and the reopening, the phase reopening and everything is saying schools should be opening earlier, like in August or whatever. The LAUSD is actually saying with the amount of money that has been budgeted in Newsom's state budget, they would not actually be able to do that. And in fact, they would probably have to open later than the normally scheduled time. So there's, there's again, a ton of stuff up in the air. Budgetarily, like when we're talking about LAUSD, a separate entity from the city, but one with a lot of interdependencies. Mm -hmm. The uncertainty that is being broadcast by the city council, again, is going to redound negatively to the parents and the families and the kids who are are trying to get an education at LAUSD. I didn't hear any consideration of that. I mean, council president Nuri Martinez always gives sort of like a cursory nod to like this concept of working families in in her remarks. Families first, but, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's
0: her thing, right?
1: But where is where is the evidence of that? There was there was a, a news report that came out this past week that fifty seven percent of families with kids in LAUSD had experienced the loss of at least one job since the COVID crisis began. Like the 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 need is overwhelming, and it's not a need for pops like there's just no way around that this is not addressing the existing need in our our city and our community
2: but the level of attention being paid to this budget i'm like really amazed by it as a testament to the organizing efforts of black lives matter and the other groups but just like celebrities who i would have never paid attention to this stuff in the past i was actually looking at I don't know if you saw the story, Uh, Shad Gaspard was a uh, a pro wrestler. He was a WWE superstar. He died. He drowned in Venice Beach a week ago on Sunday. Died saving his son. It's like an incredibly tragic story, and he was this wonderful guy. And I was looking at his Twitter feed, and his last tweet was, New York has suspended mortgage. next they will do rent. What will Los Angeles do? And he added Nuri Martinez. It's just like the uh, like just like discovering like people picking up on the power of the city council and like using advocacy to make stuff happen and the the degree you see how much they are responding to it even just by ducking like they did on Thursday. And, say, you know, normally it would just be like a, a thumbs up, like consent or whatever. They at least sent it back to committee and promised to do something mm-hmm. about it in, mm-hmm. in response to the, the huge, huge outcry over this budget. And even Garcetti sounds embarrassed about it. He was talking on the radio and saying, like, this is going to be one of those budgets, like probably our most fluid budget. Every two to three weeks, we're probably going to go back and change it. So it's like an admission of like, yeah, this shit sucks. Everyone knows it sucks, but it's only because people started screaming about it. In a normal year, it would look exactly like this, except without the cuts, and it would have just gotten passed. Yeah, but
1: here, like, here is the thing: is like shit sucks. Is tr- it's true? Shit does suck. Like that. That is, you know, uh, a rare kernel of, of wisdom that we're receiving from city government <laughs> these days. But but the the thing is like what people need and expect. And I think what what is making people so angry that we're not receiving is like, when there are difficult times like this, this is relatively without precedent in at least the the recent history of our city and, and county and region. But when there are difficult economic times, what you need from your political leaders is two things. One, you need them to be more decisive, not less. And two, you need them to be humble and realize that like you're making decisions, obviously things are going to change and you need to be able to adapt to those, but you but you do need to make decisions. And so Garcetti and also like a variety of, of city council members, including Paul Kerkorian, head of the, the budget committee, were making these statements that were, in my view, Issuing the need to make a
2: decision. Let me play this. this but, I can play this quote yeah, from ahead. Paul Krikorian, which was oh a part of his closing
3: statement. Oh, boy. Um, but uh, it, we're, we're all in this together. And when folks come to us and, um, you know, advocate around this budget, uh, I, I want us not to lose sight of the fact that um, we shouldn't spend so much of our energy arguing over crumbs that fall off the table. The truth is, if there's immorality to be addressed, it's immorality in the breakdown of the social compact in this country. It's the uh, inequality of wealth that is destroying this country, destroying its middle class. It's the decimation of public education uh, and and a manufacturing base throughout this country that allows people to have decent jobs none of those are within the province of this city to fix we are the victim of those things and it's our job to try to do the best we can with the hands that were dealt
2: so when you're mad at us go write your i hope you're also writing your congressmen and being mad about the national government because they're they're the ones who are really responsible and so it's negating oh oh he said don't fight about the crumbs that are falling off the table In this case, the $144 million raise that they're giving to LAPD officers when you should really be mad about the stuff that's going on at the federal level and the lack of aid that we're getting and you should vote out Donald Trump. It's the
0: same thing they said about the rent stuff. Like we can't do anything about it until the state or the federal government does something.
2: I mean – it's the core ideology is we yes. do not have a purpose as an agency. We will give you a yes. certificate with nice calligraphy that says that your business has been open for 20 years or whatever. We will go to parties, uh, like that kind of thing. But like in terms of making impactful change, we do not have this power, which they do have. It's a Yeah, it's a lie. It's an absolute and total lie from start
1: to finish. It requires that you would ignore that, like, they basically want you to believe that they only have the power to enrich themselves Mm -hmm. and anybody Mm -hmm. in their social orbit. And that's all that they can do. And asking more of them actually means that you're a bad person. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're one of these cruel moralizers I've been hearing about. The, The thing that gets me, though, is that city council really has shown that they lack any kind of humility throughout this. I feel like For Council President Nuri Martinez and and Paul Kerkorian in the clip that you just played, for them to listen to multiple days of testimony of their citizens, their constituents saying, this is not helpful, this is hurting us, we need your help as a city and then Nuri Martinez began her the entire discussion, actually, of the budget among council members by saying what an exemplary job city council had done from the start of the crisis to the present day. Those are remarks that we've heard echoed many times by many different voices on the city council. They spare no thought to how it looks for them to be so openly self-congratulatory Coming at the end of, like like I said, like hours and hours of people just saying, like, the city council is directly responsible for hurting us. Paul Krikorian is saying, if you have a complaint with us, it's merely because you don't understand the way any of this works. All of them think that we are apparently stupid. And should keep our dumbass mouths closed, and that—that's really like that's—that's been the characteristic dynamic. I feel like throughout this, they have insulated themselves from any sort of criticism uh, to such an extent that they can't even hear their constituents. They can't hear. Us. But
0: don't you think too that the format of the meetings happening right now, like very confrontational Zoom chat. Mm-hmm portal (laughs) and the way that people are doing really creative like comment submission and like getting people to rally, to go, you know, watch the meetings. It's kind of a transformational moment. And I feel like this is leading to bigger changes when it comes to Looking at what they're saying, looking into their houses, looking at their outfits, whatever. (laughs) But I mean, it really is, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, this is a moment when we're going to, I think, get a lot more engagement with, with what decisions are being made and holding them to account. So it's, I think it's, it's pretty exciting, even you know, as horrible as it's been.
2: One thing this moment has led to is us paying a little less attention to Sheriff Alex Villanueva for a few (laughs) weeks, but he was in the news. Let's talk a little bit about the first Measure R subpoena. Measure R was the ballot measure that we talked about in March that gives an oversight committee authority to subpoena the Sheriff's Department and just more oversight from the County Board of Supervisors. What was the result of that first subpoena?
1: So <laughs> results of the first subpoena for measure are not super auspicious. Basically from the day that it was announced that, that the the Civilian Oversight Commission was going to be demanding formally the presence of Alex Villanueva to talk about jail conditions during COVID nineteen, Alex Villanueva said, No thanks. I am good. Self yeah, so that so the the first meeting was May seventh. They had requested that that he come in person and, and speak to you. those conditions. And either he nor his representative actually showed up. Yeah, self furloughed. That's good. Um, he just decided basically that it wasn't it did not merit a response from him. So this became the first opportunity for the oversight commission to use their new power under Measure R, which is to compel at least in theory, to compel the sheriff or members of his administration to appear and give testimony before Mm -hmm. them. Alex Villanueva repeated what he has actually said multiple times about Measure R, which is that it was being used as an effort to publicly shame him, and therefore he wouldn't willingly participate in it. So So I'm
2: perfectly capable of doing that myself. Thank you so much. He his
1: contention is that he is his presence is not needed. They can get this testimony from anybody else and the fact that they are using their subpoena power is is an overstep of boundaries that he believes to exist but which I do not believe are actually anywhere within the text of the proposition that was passed by voters. And and he's saying that he will force them to take him to court, Civilian Oversight Commission. That is, that's their next step, is to go to court and try to have a judge hold Villanueva in contempt. He has a, a long history with the Measure R, which was pushed by groups like the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, uh, supported also by Black Lives Matter and a number of high-profile uh, Black criminal justice advocates throughout Los Angeles. Alex Villanueva has fought this from day one. There was uh, a very memorable moment in the lead-up to the the March primary. Memorable, at, at mm-hmm. least in the before times. Hayes, you, you mentioned that Alex Villanueva called in to a radio show as a uh, private citizen, he said, Mm. and just like talked through why Measure R was not necessary. He, he, again, at that point, said that it was an attempt to publicly shame him. Since then, he's kind of changed his tact, and now he's saying the entire measure is unconstitutional and will only lead to... He's like, the the taxpayers got tricked into doing Mm. this they didn't actually want you to have this power that 70% of them voted for you to have directly and it's only going to lead to increased lawsuit costs when for example their elected sheriff refuses to comply and then has to go to court <laughs> so it's sort yeah. of a self-fulfilling prof- prophecy <laughs> but when we when we like look at this and and the and sort of set aside Villanueva's uh, persistent efforts to undermine undermine the the oversight functions that exist within the county. What's really being happen What's really happening here is that he is being asked to testify as to the conditions in the jail system that he oversees, the largest in the country, where the LA Times has reported that we have. Prisoners who, are, who should be eligible for release, mm-hmm. who should have been released already, who are in dorm living situations where they are uh, sleeping head to toe three feet away from each other in conditions that are known to be extremely likely to uh, accelerate the spread of this disease. We, we talked a lot at the top of this show about how we've s- slowed down or at least plateaued in, in terms of the number of people who are becoming infected with COVID-19 or dying from it. But where that is not happening is in these exact types of institutional facilities. So if we have, as we have in, in the past on this show, if we have an institutional living arrangement, such as, for example, a jail, where oversight is not being conducted in such a way uh, that it will reasonably help prevent the spread of COVID-19 among inmates, that is a major uh, a major cause for action. And Villanueva apparently taking this as just another in a long line of personal affronts to his presumed dignity is completely ignoring the question of who is he endangering that is currently in his custody so
2: well no he's not ignoring it he has provided an explanation for the outbreaks in the jail system which is that inmates are giving themselves coronavirus right. on purpose ex- right. exchanging coronavirus in order to get released this is i mean the numbers that we have seen indicate that about half of the tests administered in the jail system have been positive, Positive. which is a like completely staggering figure. And they have, I mean, there's been a, compared to what, like uh, 10% in the general population, something like that. Now it's down to like 8.5%. Yeah. uh, It's less than that now. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's been like a real PR push. They released video of what they said was a group of prisoners sharing a glass on purpose so they could give each other coronavirus. Like, and at the same time, in stark contrast to what's happening at the city level, the board of supervisors has been telling him to rein in his budget. And what he did was immediately shut down two stations, I think Marina Del Rey and one other one. And then they had to come back and say, no, that's not actually what we wanted you to do. (laughs) Please... Fine, actually go through the process of lowering your budget, but just, like, this relationship already in a very unhealthy place between Villanueva and the Board of Supervisors and any possible oversight just seems to be getting worse and worse. Unhealthy dynamics. Let's talk about the great (laughs) urbanism blowout precipitated by an article that Alyssa wrote this week. Let me just say that it is such an honor to have Alyssa on this show and someone who is like is such a prominent voice in these communities uh, that just an article like this could set off so many people. Let's w- w- what happened this week Alyssa? Let's really get into it.
0: Well, I think the first the first thing to ask is You know, it's something we've talked about on the show a a few times, like in over the last few months, is when things started to get really bad, or maybe even before we knew that they were that bad, there was certain very loud, very sustained calls for certain things. And we've talked about things like slow streets. We've talked about things like density. We've talked about things like, you know, a quick quick move to like put uh, restaurants out into the street and get people, get the restaurants reclaiming the space uh, Mm -hmm. that we don't need for cars. And then this bigger thing too about you know, the air is really clear and we don't have a lot of traffic. So like, what, how can we like leverage this crisis? And
2: yeah. Or like people that have been advocating for these things for a while, basically saying like, uh, we need these things now more than ever. This is an opportunity to do them.
0: Yeah. And the language itself, I think was always like super troubling. It was things like that. It was like, seize the opportunity, reclaim, like we have to act fast. This is a once in a generation, you know, moment for us, things like that. And it always just really bothered me. And I couldn't figure out if it was because my mom was sick. And I was like, "I, I think I'm being just extra sensitive to it because these were my people, (laughs) like these were, these were the people that I identify with. I am an urbanist, although maybe I'm not sure if I'm an urbanist anymore after this, but I'm one of those people who believes, and we've talked about this before. I don't know if on the show, but we've definitely talked about it as like the three of us hanging out about what an urbanist really means Mm -hmm. and how the title itself has become kind of a negative has a negative connotation now because you are associated with all sorts of negative impacts for for cities as well. So I thought at first I was just being really overly sensitive and I just chalked it up to that. And then I started like getting questions for me. Like I remember one in particular where I was at a, one of the 500 webinars that I've appeared on since this thing began where somebody asked, how can we use this opportunity to get low-income people to drive electric cars? Mm-hmm. And oh my God. <laughs> I, I think like you could watch if the video is out, like my face kind of be like, you know, this giant wince of just being like, did you just ask me that? Because I think that that is what, if you are not directly affected by this, that's how you think of what this is. And I had a real tough time trying to, you know, we've talked about the walking thing before, like Mm -hmm. where people were like, oh, aren't you happy to see people walking? And I'm like, no, Mm -hmm. like, I'm not happy to see people. Like, isn't this what you wanted? Um, And that keeps coming up. And I kept saying, absolutely not. This is not what any of us should want. Like, this is not the right thing. And it just kept coming. It just keeps coming up. And then at the same time, there's all these stories that are like the future of cities after COVID. Like, what will we do next? Like, what will they look like? And it's always like the same, like six white guys and then like two other people. And they talk about the same things that they've always been talking about. And the New York Times last weekend had this Cities We Need package. And what really like set me off was that the the urban design op-ed in there, which was all about parks and open streets and restaurants and all these things, never once mentioned like who was dying, that they were of particular races, like that they were of particular socioeconomic backgrounds. And it was just like, oh, if we just do all this stuff, everything is going to be fine. And that's what really like got me. I think that that was like a moment of a breaking point. Because so everybody was sharing it, right? Like yeah. everybody was sharing that story.
2: And so you wrote a piece. The headline was Coronavirus is not fuel for urbanist fantasies. I think it's absolutely worth reading. Uh, the paragraph that really stuck out to me was You wrote, if coronavirus has made anything clear, it's that cities cannot be fixed if we do not insist on dismantling the racial, economic, and environmental inequities that have made the pandemic deadlier for low income and non white residents. Yet many prominent urbanists have simply tweaked the language from their January 2020 tweets and fed them back into the propaganda machine to crank out COVID-tagged content, perpetuating the delusion that all cities need are denser neighborhoods, more parks, and open streets to magically become fairer. So I believe, personally, and you're wincing at your own writing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I Because I'm, uh,
0: re- I'm reflecting on the attacks oh, that I've gotten for this. Yeah, go ahead. So
2: related. I <laughs> believe in all of these... Things I believe in denser neighborhoods, I believe in more parks, and I believe in open streets. I don't think it is as controversial a statement as it apparently is to say that if you do not implement these consciously, if you implement them in a way like slow streets, I've seen uh criticism of slow streets that has now been implemented in four uh, upper income neighborhoods
0: in LA, in LA, in so LA, you, yeah,
2: yeah, you, you widen these gaps. That currently exist by providing these amenities to the neighborhoods that have the the most resources to go get them. The way Slow Streets is set up is it says neighborhood councils fill out these forms and like ask for it and like come get it. And by design, the ones that are best equipped to jump the line are these richer white neighborhoods. And that's who got these amenities. And now the gap is a little bit wider (laughs) between Delray and the neighborhoods where. People are dying at much higher rates, and the neighborhoods where people are having to go to work at, at much higher uh, percentages and 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 put themselves in danger. I, I absolutely agree, Alyssa. If you are not acknowledging that reality that existed before, by the way, it existed like, before,
0: yeah, like,
2: and is now so much more underscored that like there are certain populations that are. Much more vulnerable to this current environment than others, and if you're not accounting for that in your strategy for reshaping the city, you are fucking up. Like you are uh, hoarding these these resources because that's how it'll that's how it'll play out.
0: And if you've if you've deemed that these things are good, like say that you did do the proper outreach or you did actually talk to people um, who were in communities that were impacted by, you know, COVID-19. Like, and asked them what they wanted and they said they wanted it. Are those neighborhoods really going to get these things first? Like, can you envision like the amazing closed street streeteries, as I love this new term? Like, can you can you really imagine that rolling out not in the rich neighborhoods first? Like the like the fanciest and nicest places where People will see that as like this, the new vibrant, you know, public space that they are going to invent out of this. I mean, I, I can't see it. Maybe it will. Maybe it could happen. Maybe, but it. But as you said, for like slow streets, it certainly has not happened in our no. city, right? So, and
1: I feel like so when you when you talk about like Alyssa, the 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 example that you gave from the webinar that you were a part of, and it's like how, how do we convert this current state of affairs into making lower income people do what we want them to do it's like that really does encapsulate it to a, a, a broad degree in my mind where it's literally just it's literally just about control the the you are looking from this lens of as is extremely common within the urbanist world which i don't consider myself part of you're you're looking with this lens of I have the answers and the world would be a better place if people just did what I told them to do all the time. And now Mm -hmm. this major pandemic happens and shocking. It has confirmed everything that I knew to be true and is only one more uh, bullet point in the list of reasons why people should do exactly what I told them to do. And how can we turn this into uh, it it's just it's weird it's it's how can we turn this into social control over over people without meaningfully attempting to center the differences in experience that might characterize their lives the the real the lack of curiosity to me has always been troubling.
0: Yeah. And another, like what, exactly what you're just saying, like I had a hard time articulating it. I didn't know what I was witnessing. It was very hard for me to even understand why I had a problem with this. And that's my own privilege. Like in this whole conversation, like I obviously am one of those people that's fine. Like our, we, our family life is intact. Like we don't have to go to work. Like we don't have to go outside if we don't need to, all these things. And there was a America Walks webinar with Destiny Thomas, who's the who's this amazing anthropologist and planner who is always really vocal about what's happening on on our streets, and she called it, she named it purple lining in front of this, which which is like a callback to redlining, and I I finally started to understand maybe that this could be a concept that people could relate to, maybe urbanists could relate to, because hopefully they know redlining was a problem and that something like this could describe it in words to to explain what they are doing and maybe be a bit reflective about what what they were trying to propose. And I think that was a real watershed moment. And there was a lot of people on the America Walks webinar and an advocacy group that you might not think would be specifically talking about a lot of these issues. And I... I think that's another really important moment that's happening right now is a lot of people, I think, are questioning what their actions are actually doing and if they are causing harm and where they are coming from. So for me, too, that was like a real a real moment for me where I heard that and I was like, now it makes it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense now.
2: You underscored a big aspect of it that like we've talked about this specific thing on the show, but it brought some clarity for me is like. The it is it's worthwhile, of course, to advocate for more opportunities for cyclists and pedestrians like it's been a big focus of this show. But right now in this moment, the space, the sidewalk space that you're claiming for pedestrians, street vendors, for example, have been forced off of it by law enforcement like they have been chucked into the shadow they have no opportunity to make money they were
0: like the first they were the first to get kicked off we've talked about it yeah Yeah. on the show yeah but
2: like that like holistic conversation i do think and like of course people can advocate for different things at the same time but i do think part of any effort to open up streets should be to bring back the people like safely, responsibly, like there are regulations that you can put in place to make of course that make it yeah. as safe as curbside pickup, obviously. It's like a, the exact same thing. That would be worth the effort, I think, to incorporate this kind of advocacy into your open streets advocacy. And it is so disappointing to me every time this gets brought up by you, Alyssa or anyone else, that people will lash out with anger and say that they don't need this advice. Uh, If you are telling Alyssa Walker, one of the greatest living advocates for multimodal transit, for for the the right to the city, that she's not being a good enough advocate about these things, you are wrong. You (laughs) need to shut up. Or just like you like respond like thoughtfully like think about it like the level of vitriol about you stating some things that like to me are at, like at best obvious but like it i understand like and i think a lot of it is urbanists and people that believe in density are in kind of a defensive crouch like wounded it's animal a t- it's a
0: tough time yeah yeah <laughs>
2: it's a- Like and and like it's and they respond in a lot of cases with like, oh, where are the bad guys when it's a lot like the Trump Biden thing? Like if you criticize Joe Biden, then someone comes along and is like, well, what about Trump? They'll come along and talk about Joel Kotkin, Orange County moron, publishing all these things about like how coronavirus proves that density was always the enemy and the farther spread out we are, the safer we'll be not accounting at all of, of course for what's happening in Seoul and Hong Kong the densest places in the entire world much closer to the epicenter of the pandemic that have not had these problems but i mean the, that the, the existence of yes worse people Joel Kotkin is awful but like the existence of those people does not make your own discipline totally unworthy of of criticism at at all times.
0: Yeah. And I think that was part of a two-part mistake that I really made in putting this together was that I was purposely vague because I didn't want to call people out specifically. I just wanted people to think. And in doing that, a lot of people who were on the urbanist side were like, well, who is this about? I need names is this me? Are you talking about me? And there are some hints, I think, and there's some, I have a lot of links in there, and there's a lot of like things you could go and read if you wanted to see some of the stuff that is framed as a little bit more insensitive during this time. And it's pretty clear who the loudest voices in the room are. Someone like Joel and the fact that he even gets lumped into the mm-hmm. <laughs> urbanist, like, field on some of these like future of city, you know, specials and stuff that people are putting together, these packages, it's pretty funny that even the editors can't tell the difference between what that person is advocating for and what somebody like Richard Florida is advocating for. It's, It's kind of funny. But I also think in my vagueness that I neglected to name some of the women who offered some of the most scathing commentary on um, a lot of these men and what they were proposing during this time. And uh, I really want to thank Tamika Butler for pointing that out in a very um, kind and gracious way uh, by showing me that what I was actually doing was undermining my own argument by um, you know, erasing the names of the women that I was saying that we should listen to. So I do thank her for that. And also thank you to friend of the show, Sarah Suleiman, who had some of the best density tweets that I density takedown tweets that I had seen. And um and really offered some some thoughtful feedback for me as well. So a lot for me to work on, a lot for me to acknowledge when it comes to my own privilege and I'll be doing that over the next few months and probably for the next decade. I don't know. They said a depression for a decade now, so I don't know. It's going to be a long time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you for being a part of this show, Alyssa. Thank you for talking about this. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing to our Patreon. We had a really fun episode this week with Molly Lambert, where we talked about Magnolia Paul Thomas Anderson's Valley Epic on 30 Mile Zone. We'll have another episode of the Ten coming out this week, where we ask a notable angelino ten questions about their Los Angeles. A lot of good stuff. Oh, and we I can say that we just commissioned our first big feature that we'll have more details about soon. Using the money from your Patreon to to provide Los Angeles journalism. It's just it rules. It's so exciting. Thank you to Brian Holmes for producing the show. We will be back next week on LA Podcast. Bye. Yeah, podcast.